Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. What's up, y'all? It's Zach Nunn. Now listen here. Y'all know what we try to do. We're trying to build, inspire, encourage, empower all on a platform that affirms black and brown experiences in corporate America. And it's interesting because as I came up, just kind of coming into myself as a professional, I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me in consulting. I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me in human resources either. But when I would come across someone who looked like me doing something I wanted to do, it gave me encouragement. It gave me a stronger sense of, of hope that I could do it too. And so it's with that that we're really excited to talk to y'all today about and bring you another entry actually into our See It To Be It series. So the next thing you're going to hear is an interview between Amy C. Wanniger, a guest on the show, a member of the team, and the author of Network Beyond Bias, and a leader who just happens to be an ethnic minority. In fact, yo, sound man, give me some air horns right here for my leaders, yo, and give me some more heroines right here for the See It To Be It series. <laughs> so catch y'all next time. I know you're going to enjoy this. Peace. Hi, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm honored that you asked me to join you. Well, I am excited because you and I have worked together before on committees and projects but never in the same company, although we are at least in part in the same industry and in the insurance industry. And so I was wondering if you could tell me just a little bit, because your job title is program manager, but a lot of people who are not in a project management space or in a corporate space with a lot of projects may not understand what a program manager does. So can we just start there with kind of what is that job? Okay, so technically it's program lead. I work for APSO, which is not an insurance company, but we provide services to the insurance industry. Um, so the easiest example that I can offer for what we do would be, let's say that in the state of Rhode Island, um, most every state actually has a mechanism to handle what's called residual market business for automobile insurance because in just about every state you have to have automobile insurance to be able to drive so what happens is that you know if all state writes 40 percent of all of the standard automobile business in a state the state will say well you also have to write 40 percent of the residual market business in that state um, the residual market is typically like really high risk drivers 
that couldn't right. get insurance other ways, right? Essentially, exactly. People who are unable to get insurance through the standard market for a variety of reasons. So what Allstate might say is, we know we have to write this business, but we really don't want to program our systems to handle this business. We don't want to hire people to handle this business that's underwritten and processed a little bit differently than our standard business. So what we're going to do is we're going to hire APSO or a company like APSO to handle it on our behalf. So that's uh, probably the cleanest example I can give of what we do. There's some variations on the way those me different mechanisms work, but that's probably the clearest example. Okay, um, so thank you. program lead, um, my responsibility is a little bit of underwriting, um, a little bit of program or, or project work. If we have to implement changes in the system, I'd be involved in the business requirements and working with the technical folks to make sure that our systems can accommodate what it is that we need to do from an underwriting and processing perspective. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. So how did you get involved in the insurance industry? Because I'm guessing based on all the people I've talked to in the insurance industry that when you were five years old and you know, you went to a family event and grandma said, and Tracy, what do you want to be when you grow up? You probably didn't say, I want to be an insurance program lead. You are absolutely correct. Although I do love insurance so much that I think that we have to get to a point where little, little, certainly little brown boys and girls say we want to work in insurance. Um, I was, uh, I'm 54 years old, I'm 55 in April, and when I was 16 years old, I was a teen mom, and when I was 17 years old, I had another baby, so here I am, two children, college dropout, and my parents said, you, you got to get a job, you got to do something to take care of these babies, um, so I got a job working at an insurance agency as file clerk, and one day, everybody was busy. The phone rang, I answered the phone, and it was a very simple call that I was able to answer because I'd been listening to the people who were customer service representatives, so I just handled the call. Um, I got promoted to customer service rep, and this was in 1984, um, and just worked my way up. Um, I went from working on the agency side of the business to the company side of the business um, as an assistant underwriter, then to an underwriter, um, to an underwriting manager um, in different companies uh, around, actually, the New York City area. In 2007, I thought I was in love. <laughs> <laughs> and actually left the industry and moved from the New York City area to Rochester, New York. Um, that relationship and the business that we were trying to build together in a different industry didn't work out, and I had to get a job, and insurance was all I knew at that point. At that point, I'd worked in the industry for over 20 years. Um, so I came to Amica um, in Rochester, moved to Rhode Island, and, you know, Amica's an amazing place to work. I was very happy working there, but... Um, I got a call one day from a recruiter. That's what happens when, you know, people have your information out there when you're networking. Uh, and the gentleman said, I've got this position I'm trying to fill. Do you know anyone who'd be interested? And when I looked at it, it looked like it was the perfect storm of everything that I've learned to do in all of the different positions that I've had in insurance. Um, so I went on the interview and I said to myself, okay, I really don't want to leave a meeting. It's an awesome place to work. But, you know, this is a really cool opportunity. So I had a number in my mind. I said, okay, if they come back at that number, that's going to be the universe telling me that this job is for me. I interviewed on a Wednesday, and on Friday I got an offer at the exact number that I had in my mind. That's amazing. So I always tell people when a recruiter calls, answer. 
because you never know what's waiting on the other side of the phone for you. And if not for you, for someone that you know, you may, you may think, Oh, I I have no interest in that whatsoever, but I know someone. And if you can connect those two people, you've just created something amazing for someone else. Exactly. And the relationship with that recruiter, because if you then get to a point where you legitimately are looking for a position, they're going to remember how you helped them out when they were trying to place folks and they're going to do their best for you. Absolutely. And sometimes you even get a little referral bonus out of it. If you, uh, (laughs) if you, you know, if you send them to somebody that they can place. So I've had that work out for me too. I was never expecting it, but when it happened, it was always nice. Yeah, Yeah. So, so, You've already told me a little bit about the different types of positions that you've held in the industry, but you know, you came into this industry kind of by chance, right? You just happened to get a job in an agency. What has been the biggest surprise to you about working in insurance that you didn't realize as someone from outside? And this is something that I've like from today I've known for a while, but I think the thing that solidified my interest in insurance and was my aha moment was when I started studying insurance, when I started studying, I actually started studying for my CPCU, which is, a, as you know, a uh, professional designation in the industry. I started studying for my designation in 1992. Um, and in studying insurance, um, I came to have an appreciation for, first of all, how important insur- insurance is, but also how diverse the industry is. Um, pretty much any discipline that you would be interested in studying there is a job for you in the insurance industry. And that is, I think, the coolest thing about insurance. Yeah, I had a similar experience. So I came into the insurance industry as an IT professional. That was my background, no insurance background whatsoever, but I just happened to be a consultant. I got placed at an insurance company. And when I then later got hired by the insurance company, somebody told me about the CPCU designation, which is it stands for Chartered Property Casualty Underwriter. It's a professional designation that requires, I think now it's eight courses to complete. You have to pass some tests, which thank goodness they're multiple choice now. They used to be blue book. Yeah, I remember books. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I wouldn't have done it. I would have been too scared. Anyway, so I started studying because I was, you know, I, I wanted to prove myself in this industry and I wanted to frankly get the bonus that came with getting the designation that my employer offered at that time. And I was amazed by the scope of the insurance industry and the mission of the insurance industry. And when people ask me, why do you love insurance? And you know, my focus of, of, of my company is not insurance specific, although maybe it will be someday. But um, I think insurance is so fascinating because it does two things. It makes all economic investment possible. Yep. There's no part of the economy that insurance is not affected by Right. I mean, every single transaction that happens is backed somewhere by an insurer. And um, the other thing we do in the insurance industry is we're there when people need us most. Absolutely. I mean, on somebody's worst day, we're there to help in you know ways that we can to make them whole and get them back on their feet. And I can't even imagine a more meaningful industry than that. I so. agree. Absolutely. So. If somebody who is maybe never has considered the insurance industry before and wants to learn more about the kinds of jobs available and how to get in, you know, how to kind of break in to this industry, where would you recommend that they go? I would recommend that they get in touch with the local chapter of CPCU. 
I would also recommend that they get in touch with professional insurance uh, agents and brokers because they have uh, professional organizations. Um, depending upon where they are in their career, um, I would, you know, for example, if they're a high school or college student who is interested in the industry, um, I would look at internships with companies, with insurance companies. Um, so those would be my suggestions. Um, I, I do also know that through professional organizations, um, those of us who are invested enough in the industry and in our careers to be parts of these organizations have a tendency to be pretty generous people. Um, so it would be pretty easy to even get a one-on-one -on -one, uh, informal or even formal mentoring relationship with someone who is in the industry that could offer some guidance. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I know that there are a number of formal programs, but like you said, LinkedIn um, is a great way to just connect with someone. If you have a target company in mind and you want to learn more about it, most people are open to a, a phone call or at least exchange emails and, and, you know, see what, what they can do to help. So absolutely. That is true. So, you know, the insurance industry has a reputation and, and I won't say whether I feel that this is deserved or not, and you know exactly where I'm going. <laughs> you know exactly where I'm going. But the insurance industry has this reputation for being stale, pale, and male. And it's all a bunch of old white men and and that's it, right? And I know a lot of different industries suffer from this stigma. Um, but for people who are maybe not um, older or white or men, um, what resources have you found that can help them kind of find their place in the industry, feel connected to others, feel a sense of community so that we can retain that talent in this industry and not lose it to somebody else? For me, I, I think back to a company that I worked for in 1990, and that was where I really got my start as an insurance professional and learned the most about the industry, but it's also where I recognize that at that particular company in 1990, the early 90s, if I wasn't a white man with a degree from the right school, there was a very distinct feeling on how far I was going to progress in my career, and that was why I ended up leading the company. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we, you know, it's great to join organizations, but I'm a grassroots kind of chick. Um, I think that it is important to give back to each other, whether it's women, whether it's people of color, it's like whatever commonality you have with someone, if you see someone that's struggling or you see someone who's where you were previously in your career, you have a responsibility um, to reach out to that person and to offer them guidance um, if, if they're receptive to it. Um, I'm the type of person that I have no qualms about reaching out to other women to women of color to just form those informal mentoring relationships even if it's just let's have lunch once a month um there's people i don't even work with anymore it just might be like an email or a linkedin message every now and then um so i think there's great value in forming those types of relationships um yes it's professional but i think that if it's a little more casual where you, where you bond with that person and, and feel comfortable speaking with them, they're going to be able to really guide you in a meaningful way. So that leads me right into my next question, which is I've noticed about you that you have a very strong professional network. I mean, you know, everybody, <laughs> <It's> 
seems like. And not all the same kind of people. Like you really know people up and down the hierarchy, you know, people across the industry. And when we were together at a conference last year, I just, I was so impressed by the span of the network that you had. (laughs) And so I was wondering, what's your approach or what are your tips to networking and how do you stay connected with so many people with such limited time? LinkedIn makes it easy because I can be on my computer at, I don't know, two o'clock in the morning when I wake up and can't sleep and I can pop in and see what people have posted. Um, you know, I gotta tell you, I absolutely adore your content and every single thing you post, I read and I share, um, you know, because I just find a lot of value in what you post and I do the same thing for other people that are part of my network. Um, as far as, I guess, connecting with people, my advice would be ask. It's simply to ask. Um, there's a woman who worked at a previous company, and she was pretty high up, um, you know, in, in the food chain, if you will. And we didn't really, I mean, we casually in passing at work speak, but it's not that we had a relationship. She ended up leaving the company, and I had no qualms about sending her a connection request on LinkedIn. I said, well, the worst that could happen is she won't won't accept it, and if she says no, I'm no worse off than I was before. Um, I think that everyone has something to offer regardless um, their discipline, regardless their position or title. Um, I think that a lot of times we don't make those connections because we prejudge and make assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that you just ask. That's good advice. So I have a, a friend in the speaking industry who says, Every time you ask, you risk getting a yes. I love that. And I really like that. And so I've, I've tried to kind of shore up my uh, my nerve to ask more because I, I would not mind risking getting a yes. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, I just believe, you know, I, I tell people this. I am by nature a pretty shy and reserved person. Um, I grew up as the, the kid who got teased a lot in school and, you know, that whole thing. So not a lot of self-confidence in my younger years. But um, when you get to a point where you got kids to feed and you recognize that the higher you achieve in your career, the more money you're going to make, um, you kind of put that to the side. You put your game face on and you make what magic happen you need to make happen. And what happens is that as you practice that, um, even if you say to yourself, Uh, I'm going to try to connect with one new person this week Mm -hmm. Um, at work. I'm going to try to make a connection with one person that I've not had a connection with previously. The more you do it, the more comfortable it becomes and the more confident you are in in doing it. That is absolutely true. And I think a lot of people see networking as as something very um, uh, fake and forced and inauthentic and they they don't feel good about it right it kind of leaves like an icky mm-hmm. an, an icky feeling about it and when you um approach it from you know, almost gamifying it i've done that in the past <laughs> right i'm gonna meet three people today i'm gonna help three people with something whether it's you know i'm gonna carry somebody's bag or i'm gonna hold open a door and say hello mm-hmm. like something and so i think sometimes just kind of reframing how we think about networking can make a huge difference in our behaviors and our attitudes and ultimately in our results. You actually you said something that um, I, I think um, is very important, that networking and connecting with people, if you treat it as what can you do 
for that person versus what can I get from that person? Because people know when you're being fake. People know when you're, you know, just have your hand out or you're looking for something, but we need to, first of all, not undervalue ourselves and recognize that we each bring something unique, but there's only one me. Nobody else brings exactly what I bring in this combination. Uh, and we have to recognize that that has value and that, other people will see that value. And if we focus on what can we offer others, even if it's a small kindness, um, you know, those things, the, the universe will bring those things back to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know that in addition to your day job, you also volunteer with the CPCU Society's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And I know what a time commitment that is because I'm on the committee as well. Yes. But can you tell me how and why you got involved? I got involved because I was asked. David Mosby, who's also on the committee with us, I was new to Rhode Island and I actually got, I'm on the board of the local chapter as well. And I was moving to Rhode Island. I said, I don't know anyone. I want to, um, you know, meet folks. So joining this organization would be a great way to make friends and immerse myself even more deeply in my industry. Um, so that volunteer, my request to volunteer results in me being asked to be on board and my relationship with David resulted in him asking if I was interested in being on the diversity committee. It is a lot of work, but I think that it is important. Um, I think the, the idea of diversity and inclusion has evolved so much over the years. Um, when a lot of people hear diversity, they think racial diversity, they think you know, gender diversity, but there's so many other types of diversity. And it really, I think, is about making sure that there are opportunities for everyone. But I think it's also toward being a catalyst for the mindset that needs to happen so that opportunities are there for everyone automatically we don't have to say you know oh you know we have to go out and make sure that we have a person of color there's a person of color because we just organically created a culture and a society where like well people of color in our community so of course they're going to have a role in our company in our organization absolutely and i tell people if you look around and you don't see someone's group represented it's because you've got work to do to make people feel welcome and make people feel comfortable there. The responsibility is not on others to seek you out, right? And so I'm thrilled to be a part of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee because I see that what's coming for us in terms of our talent, right? We have so many people on the verge of retirement in the insurance industry, and we just don't have the groundswell of interest among young people that we need to replace all of that knowledge and all of that talent. And so I think, you know, we're going to have to get beyond the certain people from certain schools yep. and, you know, really reach out, you know, broadly and show people what we've gotten, why we're such a good place to have a career. Right. Right. I think it's about building this excitement about the industry. You know, insurance isn't sexy to most people. And I think that, you know, the work that we do, particularly with the CPC Society and Diversity Inclusion Committee is to educate the public about the excitement. Like, get the, it's kind of our job to get them excited about insurance and to show them what uh, next level opportunities there are. It's not just sitting behind a desk in a 
blue suit and white shirt and red tie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. Absolutely true. So I wanted to ask you too about role models. Do you have any professional role models? And if so, what about them inspires you? So there's a woman, the woman that I mentioned um, uh, that used to work with me, and I consider her a role model. There's a few things about her that uh, resonated with me. First of all, she's very tall like I am. <laughs> and that's something that it took a lot of years for me to overcome because there's a tendency when you're quite tall to uh, not want to intimidate people. So you tend to kind of, you slump a little, you try to make yourself small. Um, so it takes a courage to just be, to stand up and just be who you are um, and recognize that you're, you're putting that in your, in your mind about, you know, that your, your stature intimidates people. Um, but she had such a grace about her um, and just a way of connecting with people. And um, I don't, she, she just, Influence. She has such presence and influence, and that is something that I um, admire greatly, and something that I work toward emulating. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I hear I hear men a lot of times will talk about tall privilege, right? So mm -hmm. if you're if you're a tall man, and the statistics bear this out, tall men make more money than short men. They get promoted to higher positions. Like we just, we revere tall men in our society. Tall women have a different set of characteristics ascribed to them. And um, I, I am not blessed with height. I'm only 5'3". Um, but I can, you know, I can imagine how that might play out and how that might, um, how that might affect the way you show up. And, you know, if you're trying to make yourself smaller physically, you're probably also trying to minimize your presence yes. in a room and minimize your contribution and not call attention to yourself and not let the best of you thrive in an environment. It's interesting because I had a conversation with someone probably about six weeks ago um, about the idea that as a very tall, not petite woman of color, if I am annoyed at work or if I feel very passionately about something, I feel that I don't have the luxury of being as vocal as someone who is not of my stature and, and my pigmentation um, because it's perceived differently. If you're vocal about a frustration, I would imagine that the word that comes back to you is angry. Yes. Or aggressive. Yes. Um, if I get upset about something, if I'm frustrated and I express my frustration, I'm mm -hmm. right. I'm not angry because I'm white and I'm not aggressive because I'm short, but I'm or I'm overreacting or I'm sensitive. Absolutely. Right. And so I think that that we all kind of operate in these constraints of um, words that are going to be used to describe us to kind of keep us in check. Yes, absolutely. I don't like it when people say that I'm being sensitive. It's like, no, I'm not being sensitive. You're being a jerk, but <laughs> <laughs> that's not on me. Right. But um, I can understand how that would be a struggle. So since the audience for this conversation are young people of color, what advice do you have for them in navigating those kinds of interactions? Because we want people to show up authentically. Absolutely. Right? but we don't want to lay a trap for people 
who the moment they speak up and advocate for themselves, they get labeled in a way that's damaging to their careers? Um, I can tell you what's worked for me. Okay. Um, I think it, to your point, it is important that you be who you are. So I'm 5'10", I'm going to wear my four inch heels because that's what I want to wear. Um, if I think that something is not right, I am going to speak up about it. What I try to do is, and, and I'm, I'm just going to say, because I, I don't want to suggest that anyone be manipulative, but in a business setting, okay, what I do is I say to myself, what is it that I want to get out of this exchange? And, you know, know who my audience is and know what I need to say and how I need to say it to get what I need out of this interaction. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about things where like, if I don't know, like I'm being discriminated against or harassed or something like that, because that's a whole different, and that's, thank God, never happened to me, to my knowledge, but um, that's a whole other kind of conversation. But just in every day, um, you know, you, your boss has said something that you didn't like, or you've been assigned something you don't think you should need to, should have to do, or something to that effect. Um, I think that it's important to always conduct yourself professionally. I think it's also important to separate your feelings from what the situation is, because just like the other person has their biases and um, their this whole set of, of um, ideas and background that's influencing their behavior, so do we. And we have to recognize, like, we have to recognize the things that we're sensitive about. We have to recognize how we might have contributed to that situation and we need to present our case in a constructive way. And it's interesting because I have a 25 year old daughter who's going through this at work right now. And what I've encouraged her to do is, you know, write down what you want to say, ask your boss for a meeting. And even if you need to have that piece of paper in front of you, make your point. Um, you know, if you feel a certain way, rather than saying, you, 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 you make me feel, you did, you, 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 I will turn that around and say, when you say or do, I perceive it as, because what you're then doing is you're taking ownership of your feelings, and you're very clearly drawing that path from, this is what happened, this is how I felt, and this is how I responded to it, what we're going to do now to fix it. Mm -hmm. And so really what you're describing is emotional intelligence. Oh, absolutely. And so in my experience, I found that I am the most emotionally intelligent when I am the least represented in the room. And I am probably the least emotionally intelligent when I am most represented in the room. <laughs> and so uh, I try, once I recognize that about myself, I try very hard to think about the dynamics of a meeting or the dynamics of a conversation and do I need to kind of practice some of those skills because I'm dominating and maybe running over someone who doesn't feel safe to speak up with me? Right. Right. And so I think that if we can all do our part, right, to recognize when maybe we've got a little bit more influence or a little bit more social power mm -hmm. and kind of back off a little bit and make some space. Yeah. Well, there's actually power in being able to do that, I think. Um, I think that when your peers see you navigate, uh, let's say, a contentious situation, you know, if, if everybody's on, you know, 15 on a scale of 1 to 10, 
and you're on maybe seven and bring everybody down to where it can be resolved, then people are going to look at you as a, a change agent, if you will. So I, I just think that that's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And that's leadership, right? Leadership is absolutely. getting everybody to a better place together. So no, I think that's great. So I wanted to ask you in the time that we have left to finish my sentence. First is I feel included when? I feel included when I am able to express myself. Oh, I like that. And then the second part is when I feel included, I? When I feel included, I'm able to include others. I love that. I love having people answer this because everybody answers differently and it's <laughs> always powerful. So Tracy feels included when she's allowed to express herself. And when she feels included, she is able to include others. Absolutely. And I don't know that there's anything more powerful than that to be able to widen that circle and bring others in. Absolutely. So that's fantastic. Tracy, thank you so much for your time oh, today. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate you so much. Oh, thank you very much. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.